One year ago, the Russian government decided to carry out what it called a special military operation in Ukraine, what the West calls the invasion by Russia of Ukraine. Today, we're going to talk about the Ukraine war one year in. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. In this week's conversation, we're going to be talking with Walter Smolarek. Walter is another colleague who helps produce and carry out the work of The Socialist Program, and we've been doing the show for more than two years. Walter is a, a journalist. He's the editor of Liberation News. And Walter is a close observer of international events. We're going to talk about the Ukraine war one year in, we're going to try to evaluate the state of the war, the state of the Russian economy, the orientation of the United States government and NATO, and the thinking of Vladimir Putin and the Russian government. We're also going to talk about how China views this war. Walter Smolarek, welcome. Glad to be here. Well, Brian, I wanted to start by getting your thoughts about Joe Biden's recent trip to Kiev. I mean, he marked the one-year anniversary or the near one-year anniversary of the beginning of the war. By traveling to Kiev, he announced a major new weapon shipment valued at $500 million in line with the U.S. policy from the beginning of the war of just pouring more and more and more weapons into the war zone. He was also visiting Poland, which is a country that's taken a particularly hard line, a NATO country that's been pushing for the shipment of tanks, advanced fighter jets to Ukraine, always sort of the most escalatory policies. So this was a very aggressive, hostile, escalatory move by Joe Biden to visit Kiev, to visit President Zelensky. What's your take on the significance of this trip coming on the eve of the one-year anniversary? Well, I think you can't mistake this as anything other than a commitment by the United States government, the full weight of the U.S. government to have Biden personally come to Kiev in this secret mission and meet with Zelensky and go on TV in Ukraine with Zelensky and in front of the whole world on the anniversary of the Russian intervention into Ukraine. It's very, very clear that the U.S. is all in, that in fact, that this is a proxy war. The United States itself, Biden is basically saying, this is our war. He's taking complete ownership of the war. It's not the first time but he's taking complete ownership of the idea that this is an American military effort. And indeed it is. And it's going to be very hard, nor is there any intention of Biden or any other political leader now to walk back from this firm commitment for all out war with Russia and Ukraine. That means the logic of the war, as we have been saying on this program over and over again, the logic is going to be in the direction of escalation people should just keep in mind that this was a gratuitous visit, meaning something that did not have to happen. It was an unnecessary effort by Biden. He didn't need to do it. He did it because he's signaling Russia. He's signaling the Ukrainians to keep fighting. He's signaling the rest of the world that the U.S. won't back down. 
And by backing down, I mean the U.S. won't go to the negotiating table, which if we go through the documents, and I want to spend some amount of time going over Vladimir Putin's speeches, the one that he just made to Russia, to the entire Russian nation on TV, but his earlier speeches from February 21st, 2022, February 24th, 2022, the day of the invasion, because Putin keeps emphasizing over and over again, we were ready to negotiate. We had drawn red lines. We said that Ukraine won't be a NATO power. Russia would not allow NATO in the United States, which is the principal power in NATO, to use Ukraine with this vast, huge border with Russia as a staging ground for advanced conventional and nuclear missiles targeting Russia, that Russia wasn't going to let that happen, that historically Ukraine and Russia had been one country up until 1991 and 1922, of course, when the Soviet Union was created, Russia and Ukraine constituted separate republics, but part of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, meaning they were still one country, even though Ukraine had republic status, that there was no way that the Russian government under Putin, or I believe actually this would be true for any Russian government, was going to allow Ukraine to become a staging ground for a hostile power or hostile powers with weapons that you know posed an existential threat to Russia. They weren't going to let that happen. And during that time, the U.S. steadfastly said, we're not going to negotiate. Russia's demands are non-starters. They said it over and over again, even as they were predicting that the result would be Russia would invade. And then, of course, Russia did invade. Putin's speeches are very interesting because he frames it politically. He frames it historically. Of course, Putin is not a communist. He's using an anti-Bolshevik and anti-Leninist framing. We want to talk about that. But the most important part about what Putin's speeches are trying to indicate is that the Russians were trying to come to a negotiated settlement and they were rebuffed over and over and over again and then expected a major Western sort of acceleration of the struggle in the eastern part of Ukraine. And it was under those circumstances that they decided to militarily intervene. And as we discuss, Walter, Putin is also saying there is an irreversible change now, not just in Russian U.S. relations, but an irreversible change in the world situation starting, as we said, once again, one year ago with the Russian intervention into Ukraine. Right, Brian. Well, let's dig in a little bit more to Vladimir Putin's address to Russia, his national address, because, of course, these details never make their way into the mainstream corporate media in the United States. I mean, we purely get a 100 percent demonized view of the Russian government, of Vladimir Putin, or indeed of any government and leadership of a country that's in the crosshairs of the United States. So, for instance, here's a quote from this address. So Putin said, Finally, in December 2021, we officially submitted draft agreements on security guarantees to the USA and NATO. In essence, all key fundamental points were rejected. After that, it finally becomes clear that the go-ahead for the implementation of aggressive plans had been given and they were not going to stop. What's your reaction to that particular excerpt, Brian, and the overall framing, the historical narrative that Putin is putting forward in this speech? Well, I think this is a remarkably important statement. First of all, is the statement true? Is it true? And two, if it is true, why don't people in the United States and Europe know about it? Because 
I think for sure people in the United States don't know, and the people in Europe I don't think know either, that Putin said, the Russians said in December 21, meaning just two months before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that they came with a draft agreement on security guarantees for all of Europe, for Ukraine, for Russia, NATO, and the United States. And that all of the fundamental points that they had in their draft agreement, so they're bringing proposals, they're saying, here's how to like end this conflict, here's how to like avoid a bigger conflict, here is the draft agreement. And Putin is saying now in the speech that was televised just the other night on Russian TV, that the US and NATO rejected all points. If this is true, Walter, if this is true, it would seem to me to be a hugely important piece of information. And if the US mainstream media cared about peace, wanted to save the lives of Ukrainians, they would be exploring this right now. What was it in Russia's draft agreement that Russia offered? I think what they offered would have been that Ukraine be considered a neutral country, that it not be considered a part of a Russian sphere of influence or a Western US sphere of influence, but that it be neutral. Say the way Austria was neutral after World War II and Austria didn't join either the Eastern or Western camp after World War II. I believe that's what the Russians were proposing. Now, if Blinken and Jake Sullivan and Biden and the Pentagon said no to that, the question is, why did they say no? If that was the way to avoid a war, a war that by US capitalist media's estimates has taken the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, either taken their lives or left them with life-changing injuries, if all of this could have been avoided by coming to an agreement and the US and NATO re and Zelensky rejected it, that would be a key, important, critically important piece of information. You know, in a couple of weeks, Walter, large numbers of people are coming to the White House. It's the 20th anniversary of the US invasion of Iraq 20 years ago, March 19th, 2003. There's going to be a big protest at the White House. Big coalition of anti war groups have come together for Saturday, March 18th. One of the demands is stop endless US wars and NATO, but also go back to the negotiating table and come to a peace deal with Russia to end the war in Ukraine. But Biden, by going to be with Zelensky on the anniversary and making a big show of it to the media, Biden is basically doubling down and saying, we don't care about negotiations now, we wanna win the war. And as Lloyd Austin said, the Secretary of Defense General Lloyd Austin, our goal is to weaken Russia or to impose, as other US officials have said, a strategic defeat on Russia, whatever that means. What it does mean for sure is that the US has deliberately, calculatingly, purposely not engaged in real negotiations because it actually wants this war. So, you know, this is the height of cynicism. If what Putin is saying in his speech is true, okay, if somebody can prove that it's not true, we'll talk about that. But if what he's saying is true, that they offered a draft agreement, a comprehensive agreement, in December 2021, two months before the invasion, and the US resolutely rejected all of it, that means the US is actually responsible for this war. That means the US, in spite of all of the crocodile tears it's shedding for Ukrainians, 
actually doesn't give a damn about Ukrainians. They actually wanted the war for their own geostrategic purposes, and they thought the war would indeed weaken Russia. And of course, another element of the hugely irresponsible, reckless nature of the U.S. policy in this conflict is that this actually raises the prospect of an all-out conflict, an all-out confrontation, World War III, between Russia and the United States. I mean, the, the element of Putin's address that the U.S. media is focusing on is his announcement that Russia is withdrawing from the New START treaty, the treaty to essentially limit the testing, production, deployment of nuclear weapons. That's completely devoid of context, of course. You know, the United States under the Trump administration withdrew from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which is far more consequential in terms of European security than the New START Treaty. But still, you know, it does underscore the fact that while the United States is viewing this right now as a proxy war, where the Ukrainians are the ones doing the fighting and the dying in huge numbers, and Russian soldiers too, of course, this could actually become an all-out confrontation. This could spiral outside of anybody's control. Indeed. Indeed, it could. And I want to talk about Putin's announcement. It comes right at the end of his speech. And people can get the speech for themselves. You can just go online, use the search terms of the full text of Putin's speech, or you can go to the, the Kremlin, I think, has an English language version of the speech. But at the very end of the speech, at first he talks about why the invasion happened, what their goals were. He's talking about how the country is faring economically. He's talking about the sort of commitment and responsibility that the Russian government feels to people who have been conscripted, the families of people who have loved ones fighting in Ukraine. And then at the end, he basically says, oh, and we're pulling out of the START Treaty. And as you said, Walter, START Treaty was the last remaining piece of arms limitation or arms agreement treaties from the Cold War. There was the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty that was considered to be a cornerstone of U.S.-Soviet arms control architecture that was developed as a way to prevent either side from becoming convinced that it could launch a first-strike nuclear weapon. An Anti-Ballistic Missile Defense Treaty basically says you can't create a missile defense shield in your country that would allow you to stop incoming missiles into your country. Now, that sounds like a defensive measure, but the point of the ABM treaty was to stop an offensive first strike strategy from being implemented by either side, either the Soviet side or the US side. The logic here goes something like this. If a country can launch preemptively a first strike nuclear attack targeting the missile silos of the enemy, and take out, say, 95% of their military capacity in the first strike, but they still have 5% of their missiles that are still intact and can be launched in retaliation. A missile defense shield, while it couldn't pick up 100% of incoming missiles if it was the full arsenal, might be able to pick up the 5%. And so having outlawed missile defense shields, it's basically the Soviet Union and the United States were saying, we understand that nuclear war has become unwinnable, that if either side launches it, it will mean probably the extinction of the human species as we know it and all living things on the planet Earth. We're going to create this arms control architecture so that 
neither side actually comes to the conclusion at some point later under some other administration that they can win a nuclear war. In 2002, George W. Bush abolished the ABM. Didn't abolish it, the US left it. And then the US started creating missile defense shields in Europe, in Poland, in Romania. In other words, they said at that time, Walter, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they kept saying, well, we wanna catch incoming, possible incoming Iranian missiles, which of course is a joke. The real purpose was to start to create a missile defense architecture by NATO in the Eastern European, Central European countries that were formerly Soviet and Russian allies when they were led by socialist governments. So Bush left the ABM. And Putin said about 10 years after that, that that was a game changer for the Russians. Then the US, as you pointed out, left the INF treaty during the Trump era. INF was prohibiting the placement of short or medium range missiles that had a flight time of about six or seven minutes to their targets that might be three to 450 miles away. That was important because the U.S. under Reagan had been encircling the Soviet Union with exactly those kind of weapons. That led to the massive anti-nuclear movement, the freeze movement in Europe in the 1980s. But it led also in 1986 to a treaty signed by Gorbachev and Reagan in Iceland to do away with those kind of weapons. In other words, destabilizing weapons because they're, they had such a short flight time. The other side couldn't defend against them it would put all of the defense on a computerized automatic trigger response, meaning it was a destabilizing weapon. So the U.S. and the Soviets signed that treaty in 1986. And then under Trump, the U.S. left it. The U.S. has also been violating basically the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, whereby both the U.S. and the Soviet Union pledged that they would not militarize outer space and use outer space as the new high ground. And now the only treaty left was the START Treaty. And basically, Putin said, we're leaving the START Treaty. It's no longer applicable. We're not going to violate the treaty. But if the US and NATO start to violate it, we no longer feel compelled to adhere to it. So you're right. We're moving step by step by step in the direction of a nuclear confrontation. And, you know, at a certain point, when the U.S. adopted major power conflict as its operational strategy and doctrine, and that happened in 2018 under Trump, but has not been reversed by Biden, in fact, has been reinforced by Biden, major power conflict as a doctrine actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because as the U.S. readies itself, prepares itself, and also engages in actions both in Ukraine and Taiwan, which clearly demonstrate that it's ready for and is already engaged in major power conflict as a proxy with Ukraine and with Russia, this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We are moving in the direction of major power conflict by the biggest nuclear powers in the world. Just so people understand the dimensions of the nuclear weapons, the U.S. has about 2,700 nuclear weapons that are ready to go, meaning they're either on airplanes the B-1 or B-2 bomber, B-52 bomber, or they're in missile silos, intercontinental ballistic missile silos, or they're on submarines. In any one of those Trident nuclear submarines, and there's 12 of them, every submarine has 120 nuclear warheads that can devastate, destroy simultaneously 120 different cities, one submarine. 
So the United States is ready to go, but in addition to the operational weapons, it has another five or 6,000 nuclear weapons that are ready, could be made operational within a very, very short amount of time. And the Russians, while they have a smaller, they don't have a, as comprehensive of a nuclear sort of positioning, they have thousands of nuclear weapons. So both sides are armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons. And the U.S., the Biden administration, having rejected, if it's true, Russia's offers for a, a comprehensive agreement in December 2021, prefers to play nuclear chicken with the other major nuclear power in the world. Really disgusting. Such an unbelievably dangerous situation for every human being on the planet. I mean, every person on Earth has an interest in seeing this policy of constant escalation pursued by the U.S. government come to an end. So, of course, there's the military dimension to the conflict, which is primary. But this conflict is also playing out in the economic arena. When the war started in February of 2022, there was a comprehensive sanctions regime imposed on Russia by the United States and by the major Western European powers, as well as Japan. Japan heavily sanctioned Russia, too. That was widely expected to cause an economic depression in Russia. A total economic collapse was, was widely predicted widely expected. But the news just came out within the last couple of days that, in fact, last year, Russia's economy shrank only 2.1%. Only 2.1%. In fact, a relatively mild recession, not total economic catastrophe, as was predicted. What happened? Why has Russia been so resilient? And what consequences has that had for the world? Well, I think it is pretty surprising, and I think it must have surprised the United States. It doesn't mean that Russia hasn't been impacted negatively by the sanctions. I mean, Russia has been basically evicted from the world economy. The Nord Stream 1 pipeline, the Soviets earlier before Russia became Russia only and not the Soviet Union, the Soviets had built a pipeline and then a second pipeline to Europe to bring natural gas. That was gas coming from Russia or Russian territories. Then there was Nord Stream 2, the latest additional pipeline. That pipeline, as Biden and Blinken and Victoria Nuland, by the way, if you remember before the, the war started, they promised that the US would end Nord Stream 2 if there was a military conflict. And then there was explosions that destroyed these two pipelines, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. Seymour Hirsch has said that he has proved that it was a, a special unit in the Pentagon that carried out the destruction of Nord Stream 1 and 2. The American officials were celebrating after its destruction. Weirdly, the American media started to blame Russia for blowing up its own pipeline, which is, of course, ludicrous and bizarre. But in wartime hysterical media coverage like anything goes... But, you know, the loss of Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, these are big losses for Russia. The fact that Russia couldn't have other normal transactions with what would be its natural trading partners in Europe, especially Germany, that undoubtedly is very impactful. Because of the conscription in Russia, also a number of Russians who are especially middle class people with professional skills who have the means to avoid the draft by leaving the country. We know that that happened. So there's been undoubtedly negative economic consequences, but it's quite right what you're saying, Walter. It wasn't the catastrophe that the U.S. was predicting. 
And Russia was obviously preparing for a plan B in the event of this developing into an all-out conflict. And by that, I mean, in other words, stockpiling materials, making alternative trade plans, maybe making alternative arrangements with China, with India, with parts of the third world. And I want to talk about how the third world and Asia, so-called third world, the global south, let's call it the global south, has viewed the Russian-Ukraine war or the U.S. proxy war with Russia in Ukraine, how they are viewing it, not just the people, but also the governments are viewing it quite differently than the way it's being presented or viewed in Europe or the United States. Those countries have actually increased their trade with Russia, meaning that Russia has another part of the world that it was able to sort of switch out, swap up with as trade partners. So you may have some of the facts, Walter, I'm not sure, but the economic data shows a very large scale increase in trade with India, an increase in trade, of course, with China. And I, I want to talk about the Russian-China relationship in a couple minutes. Also in Africa. And by the way, in Africa, a lot of Africans, not all, of course, but I think a substantial part of the population in Africa feels that the U.S. is the empire that took the place of the colonial empires that oppressed, divided, and tore Africa up, and that the U.S. is now has a global rival that's willing to fight back in Russia. I'm not saying this because I'm saying that's the right idea. I'm just saying it's true. This is the way lots of people, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people in Africa and Latin America and Asia are viewing the war, quite different from the way people in the United States or Europe are viewing the war. But obviously, Russia has, it's a big country. This is really important. And I think, Walter, I, we need to do a little bit more research about Putin's speech, some of his economic indices. But you know, when you think about it, the Soviet Union was a country that had a landmass that stretched all the way from the Pacific you know, to the eastern part of Europe. It was the largest landmass country in the world. And Russia, even though it's no longer the Soviet Union and has lost important parts of the territory, the non-Russian republics that are now independent, it still has this vast area. Soviet Union was the most blockaded, embargoed, and sanctioned country up until that time ever. But the Soviet Union developed a kind of self-sufficiency. Stalin called it socialism in one country, if you remember, and that was a debate that was taking place in the communist movement, including inside the Soviet Communist Party, about could you develop socialism in one country? But this one country was so big that it had vast resources, vast natural resources, vast spaces, and it was able to have self-sufficiency because it created its own internal, separate sort of economy, a planned economy, a centralized planned economy that was not under the impact and influence and domination of, of the world economy, which was indeed a world capitalist economy. My point is the Soviet Union became self-sufficient the Russian government is no longer socialist, it's no longer the Soviet Union, but it has the experience of how to utilize the country's resources with self-sufficiency, and that means strengthening the state sector. So even though it's not no longer led by a communist party, Putin is an anti-communist, there are elements of the, the state sector in the Russian economy using these vast resources at its disposal 
and having natural trade partners with China, with India, and others in the global south, the success of Russia, again, it's not without problems. I'm sure they've suffered a lot as a consequence of all the sanctions, but they have survived and they sh they're showing a certain resilience that I think has probably taken Washington by surprise. You may have some of the numbers about the trade. It's really quite interesting. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think the, the phenomenon that you're talking about is, is maybe most dramatic in the energy sector and oil, gas exports, which is really the, the core of Russia's trade with the rest of the world. So for the entirety of 2022, Russia actually increased its oil output by 2%, and they boosted oil export earnings by 20% to $218 billion. These are figures that come from the International Energy Agency. So that boost in oil export earnings is because the price of oil skyrocketed on the global market as a consequence of these sanctions imposed by the United States, by European powers. That actually led to a major increase in the amount of revenue that Russia was able to generate. To underscore the point that you were making about the importance of Russia's trade relations with India, Russia's oil exports to India have grown by a factor of 16 since the beginning of the war, 16-fold. So now it stands at 1.6 million barrels per day of oil exports to India. That's as of December of 2022. And another factor, as you mentioned, is Russia's relationship with China. China recently moved away from the zero COVID policy and toward a policy of pandemic response that involves fewer restrictions on economic activity. That's led to a boom in economic growth, economic activity in China. And that's having a major positive impact on Russia's economy as well. China is importing much more oil than it had, you know, maybe just a few months ago. Now it's hit 16.3 million barrels per day. A lot of that is coming from Russia. And as that economic activity steps up, the demand for Russian energy sources will remain elevated. This is really different than what the United States had in mind at the end of the Cold War, where the U.S. would be the unipolar power. No, no other power could challenge it on a global or even regional basis. But in fact, we have all of these economic powerhouses that have emerged in the last 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, this has really been an indispensable factor in Russia's, the Russian economy's ability to withstand what's happened over the course of the last year. And also, Walter, BRICS which is this other organization along with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and some other multilateral entities that are considered to be a really an alternative to complete US hegemony. The BRICS countries were Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, major economies. Now under Bolsonaro, it was a question about whether Brazil, which is of course the largest country in Latin America, was gonna sort of just be a, a stooge of the United States, the way the NATO countries are or the way Zelensky is. But Lula won. And Lula, too, the U.S. was trying to kind of conscript the new Brazilian government to go in a different direction. But I think what Lula did and what Lula said in the attitude of Brazil and especially South Africa, of course, China, very noteworthy in terms of other countries that don't want to live under unipolar U.S. domination. And so they've taken a different tack towards the war. Not that they're for the Russian military invasion, but they're definitely taking a different tact. Yeah, I mean, just to review a couple of instances of that, I mean, right now there are military exercises going on between 
the Russian and South African navies, you know, major large scale naval drills that the South African government was under a lot of pressure to cancel, but they refused to do that. And the South African foreign minister has actually made many comments since the beginning of this conflict about how her country will not be bullied into choosing sides by the United States. Olaf Scholz, the leader of Germany, the chancellor of Germany, went to Brazil recently. He, as you were you know, mentioning, tried to sort of conscript the new Lula government into this effort, but Lula firmly rebuffed that. He said that Brazil was a country that was interested in peace, not in exporting weapons. The president of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, has similarly spoken out strongly against NATO's overall role in this conflict, making sort of broad geopolitical critiques as well. So it really has been an opportunity, I think, for a lot of leaders of countries in the global south to express their independence, express the view that the world has changed and that the United States can no longer simply issue dictates. I mean, this has got to be something, Brian, that really deeply concerns, disturbs the policymakers at the Pentagon and at the State Department. Indeed. And the BRICS country, it's not like the old socialist camp where there was an ideological component to the unity of the socialist camp. So it was the Soviet Union and China, North Vietnam, North Korea, the Eastern European governments that were led by communist parties, then Cuba after the 1959 revolution. Those countries, they were socialist. They had a socialist integrated sort of second globalization, a second world economy. They did their own trade and aid with each other. There was like an international division of labor economically. And there was a cohesion because they were led by communist parties and they at least officially all said that they're socialists or communists. So there was this ideological component to that camp. What we are seeing emerge, and especially after the Russian military invasion of Ukraine a year ago, but it wasn't just then, it was also before then, is the emergence of a group of countries who are not ideologically bound together. Again, China is led by the Communist Party of China, led by Xi Jinping. Russia is United Russia led by Putin. Putin is an anti-communist. He's, you know, denounced Lenin and Lenin's nationalities policies a year ago when he announced the invasion or the intervention into Ukraine. They're not ideologically the same, but they're major countries, they're developing countries. They're strong enough to be independent. They're big enough to be independent. They don't want to be dominated by the United States. And so they're being brought together sort of not based on ideology, even though there's, it appears a certain symmetry to the old, you know, post-World War II, two camps world. It's not like that. And China doesn't want to be just in a camp of socialists. China has a, basically a nationalistic foreign policy, but there's a congruence, a conjunctural congruence of interests that bind them together. And with that said, Walter, I want to make mention of the fact that the other really interesting thing that is developing right on the anniversary of the war. You have Biden going to Ukraine, basically telling the rest of the world that Ukraine is now an extension of American power, or at least a part of an American sphere of influence. And the U.S. is completely committed to winning the war for Ukraine. You have Putin as the leader of Russia going on TV, talking about what's going on with the war, but also announcing that there is an, as he put it in the first sentence of his speech, a radical and irreversible change in world politics, meaning 
the end of the unipolar era that started with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the socialist camp. So Putin is talking about it. And then the Chinese government's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, not the party, not the Communist Party, but the Ministry of Foreign Affairs issued a statement also time to coincide, I believe, with the anniversary of the invasion. Maybe it's coincidental. I don't know, but it's hard to hard to think that. The headline of this new document, and people should get it for themselves. You should read it. Everybody should read it. It's called U.S. Hegemony and Its Perils. And it's got a table of contents, political hegemony, throwing its weight around. This is talking about the U.S. This is the Chinese foreign ministry. The Chinese foreign ministry used to talk like this in the 1960s, but it hasn't talked like this in a long time. Chapter two, military hegemony, wanton use of force, again, by the U.S., economic hegemony, looting and exploitation, technological hegemony, monopoly and suppression, cultural hegemony is chapter number five, spreading false narratives. Walter, this is an incredible document. This is an all-out comprehensive statement by the Chinese foreign ministry accusing the U.S. of attempting to be a hegemon, a unipolar power. And they say it's a peril to the world. And they review all of the crimes of U.S. imperialism and all of its efforts to suppress countries, impose economic sanctions, seize the assets of other countries. They talk about the war in Yugoslavia, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, the destruction of Libya, the proxy war in Syria. It's really a remarkable document. And then it goes through the entire history of the United States and cites like 400 different U.S. interventions, most of which are in Latin America or in the Americas, but are far flung in Korea, Vietnam. It's like an anti-imperialist document from the Chinese foreign ministry. And ever since China was sort of integrated into the world capitalist economy, ever since China was allowed into the World Trade Organization, not ever since, but for those years, the language of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was very mild. It was the most radical thing would be kind of win-win. Our advance doesn't come at your expense, meaning you're the U.S. empire. Can't we be friends? You know, the kind of this yearning for normal relations. Well, if China is now describing U.S. hegemony as the principal problem in the world, that means the Chinese government has taken a decision. And I think you could see also by Blinken's meetings with the Chinese foreign minister, I think it was the foreign minister or Chinese diplomats in Munich this week, the U.S. is on the path to taking a very, very hard line. All of the media headlines are the U.S. must prepare for war with China in Taiwan. We now know that the U.S. has been secretly training Taiwan's military forces. And Taiwan, at the same time, has been acknowledged by the United States in the Shanghai communique of 1972, reaffirmed in another communique in 1979, reaffirmed a third time in a communique in the early 1980s, that Taiwan is part of China. And yet the U.S. is developing a military strategy around Taiwan, an island that it acknowledges as part of China. It's such a flagrant, provocative way to carry out relations with China. It makes it almost self-fulfilling again because Taiwan is the cornerstone and has always been the cornerstone of U.S., the normalization of U.S.-Chinese relations. Anyway, this is a remarkable document, U.S. hegemony 
and its perils. I haven't seen anything coming from the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs like this in a long time. It shows that the Chinese, Walter, have come to the conclusion, not that they were for the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but if U.S. imperialism and NATO are able to defeat Russia, which is their goal in Ukraine and beyond, that that just accelerates the coming war between the United States and China. And so the Chinese, while they say we want a negotiated settlement, and I, I believe they really do, they want the war to end, they also don't want and are committed to Russia not being defeated because it just means that the war will, the theater of war, because there's an endless U.S. imperialist war drive underway, the war will move from the Ukraine, from Eastern Europe to the Pacific, and it'll be towards China. Anyway, a remarkable statement from the Chinese government. Yeah, Brian, let me just read one excerpt from it that I think underscores the point that you're making about what a sweeping critique this is. So this is under the section military hegemony. Since it gained independence in 1776, the United States has constantly sought expansion by force. It slaughtered Indians, invaded Canada, waged a war against Mexico, instigated the American-Spanish War, and annexed Hawaii. After World War II, the wars either provoked or launched by the United States included the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, the Kosovo War, the war in Afghanistan, the Iraq War, the Libyan War, and the Syrian War, abusing its military hegemony to pave the way for expansionist objectives. In recent years, the U.S. average annual military budget has exceeded 700 billion U.S. dollars, accounting for 40% of the world's total. So I, I completely agree with you. I mean, quite a remarkable document. And it, it really shows that this is the crux of a global conflict, a global struggle. And the question is, will the United States, will US imperialism maintain its stranglehold over the entire planet in the 21st century? Right. And, you know, I want to clarify too, as we wrap up here, Walter, as we're moving towards the finish line, is that, you know, we're socialists. We see that the struggle for peace and against militarism is linked to the struggle against poverty, the struggle against exploitation and oppression of all types, and that the solution to the danger of current war is to end the system of capitalism. So we're not fighting for a multipolar world. We're fighting for a socialist world where peoples of different nations and ethnicities can truly live in peace because there aren't capitalist corporations driving, having an expansionist agenda for new markets, new exploitation, et cetera. So there could be the economic basis for actual peace would be created. That's what having a, a socialist world would look like. In other words, the capitalist classes in different countries would be gone and people could actually have sisterly, brotherly, familial good relations with each other rather than endlessly spending money for death and destruction. So we're socialists. And our solution is not multipolarity. Multipolarity doesn't solve the problem of endless war, growing war, and even the prospect of World War III, because as long as capitalism exists, and as long as imperialism exists, and as long as the U.S. imperialist sort of apparatus exists, and it can only go away, really, if the people in this country radically transform our society. As long as it exists, the danger of global war continues, just like the danger of climate catastrophe only grows ever bigger. There are many other cascading crises in society besides war and the environment and the climate. 
but those are two big ones. And so we need a socialist solution. But having said that, we can also understand that in the here and now, in 2023, the idea that some countries are banding together to prevent, at least in the short term, unipolar domination by the U.S. hegemon, by U.S. capitalism, U.S. imperialism, using the Pentagon sort of basically as its military strike force around the world. And as the Chinese point out, and as Putin pointed out in his speech, and again, we're not political supporters of Vladimir Putin, but they pointed out correctly, objectively, the U.S. has 800 military bases around the world for the purpose of global domination. No other country has that. So to the extent that we see the emergence in this new world order, which, as Putin said, is radically different from the old one and irreversible, meaning that there are going to be, it's going to be the end of unipolar U.S. domination and the, a new stage of multipolarity and increasing struggle. We recognize that countries in Africa, in Latin America, in the Middle East, in Asia, the countries that have been the colonized, dominated parts of the world for centuries, they don't want to live under U.S. unipolar domination or any foreign domination. They want to be free, independent, and sovereign people. And so, Walter, this era is truly on us. It's a new era. It's very important for progressive, working-class, socialist, anti-imperialist forces, including people who have all kinds of different ideologies, to come together to stand for peace, to stand against militarism, to stand against the war machine. And I want to urge everyone watching this show or listening to this podcast, come to Washington, D.C. on March 18th, 12 noon at the White House. We're going to have a march. We're going to have a major rally. There's going to be going to be a broad coalition of organizations. If you're in San Francisco in the Bay Area, there's going to be a demonstration, a similar sister demonstration there. A large number of organizations are working together for this. I could just say the Answer Coalition, the People's Forum, Code Pink, UNAC, Black Alliance for Peace. Now I'm probably forgetting some key organizations, but there are literally hundreds of organizations that are coming together. If I haven't mentioned you, I apologize coming together to stand together against imperialism, against militarism, against war, and for social justice. And so we urge everyone on the 20th anniversary of the Iraq war, say no to endless U.S. wars. Join us at the White House, 12 noon, March 18th. And if you want more information, if you want to see about transportation from your area, how to get there, if there are buses or car caravans coming, go to the website answercoalition.org. There are many other websites of the anti-war groups that will also have similar information, but I'm part of the Answer Coalition, so I know that you can go to our website, answercoalition.org, but become part of this new movement. We're going to keep this discussion going. You're listening to The Socialist Program. I'm Brian Becker. We were joined today by Walter Smolarek. Walter, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. 
connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 